0: If you are visiting or watching online, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here. And one, one note that I just uh, want to share with you, uh, it was brought to my attention in a text message uh, last night that Tuesday is Valentine's Day. Uh, I, was, I was thankful for the reminder uh, from my friend. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think it'd be good for us to look at Valentine's Day as a Christian. And what I mean by that is, uh, do you think it's an accident that our culture and our world would create a day that would talk about the expression of love? So on a Valentine's Day, considering the shortness of this life, I can't help but think about the earthquake in uh, Turkey and Syria, Um, hard and difficult things that you hear in our community uh, in our families, uh, in, in, in our country, is life not a vapor? Is it not just so incredibly short? And would God not providentially even give us something as silly as a Valentine's Day uh, to take advantage of the opportunity to go tell someone that you love them? So whether it is a spouse uh, someone you want to be a spouse, your coworker, your friend, your mother, your sibling, um, take advantage to express your deep love and affection for them because you don't know you have tomorrow to do that. And then, of course, uh, point them to the greatest love in Christ. And maybe buy some candy and flowers. That helps. Well, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And and I would imagine in a room like this, there is a good deal of anxiety that we are individually and collectively experiencing. Perhaps you find yourself in circumstances that you never thought you would. You have questions about your life or this world that have no clear and concrete answers. Maybe you're seeking for clarity and answers... The seeking of that has created unintended consequences as you have relational fracturing, doubts about God, and uncertainty about the future. Beneath the surface, underlying, behind anxiety, is this underlying desire that has been around since the beginning of humanity, since the garden with Adam and Eve. The desire and question. Of knowing. I want to know. What does my financial future hold? Will I ever get married? When will I die? Kids, what's gonna happen at school this next week? Questions. And when these kinds of questions start to build, it's not just our anxiety and blood pressure that rises. But rising up out of our hearts, manifested in our words, our thoughts, and our actions is a grasp for control. I don't know. I can't answer. So I'm going to find something that I can tangibly control in an out-of-control world. Well, this is all very intimately connected to our passage this morning. And I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures if you haven't and turn to Matthew Chapter 4 will be in verses 1 through 11. And we'll be examining what is commonly referred as the temptation of Jesus. You see, our anxiety, the desires for knowledge and control, actually have a lot to do with temptation. Temptation, as we commonly understand it, is the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise, says dictionary.com. Temptation is born out of solving the answers to our problems of unmet expectations and anxiety in life. So contemplating temptation, not just ours, but Jesus's, we will see that the person and the identity of Jesus, this Savior, impacts our everyday life. And our main idea this morning, the the big takeaway, is simply this. Jesus is fulfillment and example. And there's two qualifiers I want to make immediately, because I want to frame uh, how the way that we look at this passage. So first qualifier, uh, you are not Jesus. That should be a no-brainer. But we have a terrible habit as Christians. See, often when we come to the life and the ministry of Jesus, we ignore the intent of why this slice of his life is being communicated, and we immediately place ourselves into his story, into the story of the text. Well, we cannot make that mistake here. You're not Jesus. This is a gospel narrative of his life, not yours. Following Matthew's train of thought, and we've gone now, Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4. Kids, that's how it goes. 1, 2, 3, 4. So following Matthew's train of thought, he's been building an argument that Jesus is the better and true son from David and Abraham. Jesus came out of Egypt and obeyed and fulfilled all righteousness. And just like the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus is a fulfillment of God's old promises. But, and more on that in a moment. But, so, so you're not Jesus. But my second qualification is a little bit of a contradiction of what I just said. You're called to follow Jesus. Now, I'm going to argue that this passage is not given for us to fulfill. Jesus has fulfilled that. He's done that. It's a passage, though, that reveals to us the person and the character of Jesus a person and character that we've committed to emulate as we reproduce faithful followers of Christ. This is what we call nuance. Brand new thing. Our world doesn't know about it. Watch the news. Nuance means two things can be true at the same time. This passage narrates Jesus' life as Matthew demonstrates that he's the Savior. This passage also as we look at it closely, it allows us to sit under the example of Jesus because we, too, are tempted by many things in the life that we live. So, God has a word for us. Would you read it with me? Uh, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. To the test. Well, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. Well, first in our passage, we see that Jesus is led into difficulty. He's led there. I get this directly from verse 1. In fact, it's probably my favorite verse in the passage. See, we come to this really strange statement. Matthew says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into temptation season. I wonder if our theology has room for such a statement. We read in the book of James that God does not tempt anyone, especially his son Jesus. So if God is not a tempter, that title belongs to Satan. How do we understand God's sovereign and providential leading of Jesus, into temptation. Well, again, we see the need for careful thinking. We dare not assign God with sin, and we dare not say that events, circumstances, and even temptations that people find themselves in are outside the wise planning and the decrees of God. So the temptation of Jesus, the necessity of it, has to be understood in light of Matthew's accounts and and really the whole of scriptures. Matthew is laying down the foundational explanation of Jesus' identity so that when we come to his ministry and his life and his death and his resurrection, we will come to the conclusion that he's the God-man. He's the Son of God who fulfilled all righteousness, who brings about our justification and our joy in the gospel. So this temptation that we read is part of the fulfillment of the work of Christ. To succeed where Israel has failed. So that the covenant blessings of God might be experienced and freely given to the children of God. Jesus must be tempted to prove to be the better son. Jesus must be tempted to affirm all righteousness. Jesus must be tempted And overcome that temptation to qualify to be the perfect substitute on our behalf. Well, the author of Hebrews says it better than I do. Uh, One of my Lakewood sisters texted me this verse after last week's sermon about Jesus being for our righteousness. So in Hebrews 2.17, we read this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, Jesus was tempted in human flesh to identify with his own people, to overcome where they had failed, And to bring about an appeasement or or a forgiveness, a satisfaction for the payment of sin. Praise God. Jesus was led by the Spirit. It wasn't an accident. He wasn't there because he took a wrong turn. He wasn't enduring temptation because he had sinned and made poor choices. Jesus was tempted because God led him into a season of temptation. Lakewood, we can make certain application to ourselves in this verse. Nothing in Jesus' earthly life and ministry is an accident or coincidence. There is no such thing as an interruption. Only divine and appointed circumstances in Jesus' life, and the same is true of us. We need to make the same careful qualifications that the Scriptures do. God does not tempt us, but he does lead us into seasons to be tempted. So when you find yourself this week in the midst of temptation, be reminded of this. God has you where he has you. By the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you've been given the life that you have. God has orchestrated even your seasons of temptation. Well, that is a helpful category. But certainly there's more here for us and this in fact may drum up more questions than answers. So look with me next as we see that Jesus was faithful in difficulty. He wasn't just led into difficulty by the Spirit, but he's faithful in difficulty. And really this is this is the central this is the core of our passage and the argument that I think Matthew's trying to lay before us. We see Jesus' faithful response in verses 2 through 10. Verse 2 should really stand out to us. It's not happenstance that Jesus has been described as the better and truer Son. He came out of Egypt and obeyed and fulfilled all righteousness where Israel and we had not. So in continuing a retracing of Israel's steps, Jesus is led into the wilderness just as the nation was so many thousands of years before. You may be familiar with a historical account. If you're not, it's okay. Here's the refresher. You'll read in the book of Exodus that God delivered and redeemed the Jewish people out of slavery. Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, you could say a baptism of sorts. They went through the waters, they came out, and they journeyed in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering quite literally, but also spiritually, as they found themselves doubting, and fearing, and sinning, and failing to truly live for and trust God. Well, now fast forward to our passage. Matthew documents that Jesus, too, was led by God into the wilderness. For 40 days and nights, he was fasting. He was weak. He was tired and weary. He was hungry. And then the devil shows up to tempt him when he is most weak. And we know from our own experience, don't we, that in our weariness is when we find ourselves most prone to give over ourselves to temptation. So I'll make a quick note, of contrast here uh, in verse 2. A contrast where we're nothing like Jesus. You see, Jesus had no sin nature. There was nothing in himself that had a sinful orientation or I- even an inclination. Jesus' temptation was purely external. From the outside. Israel and we, we can't say the same. We're flawed, and we have flawed, imperfect, rebellious, fearful, doubting, and wounded, wounded hearts. Unlike Jesus, our temptations largely come from inside ourselves and not outside ourselves. Now, that's not to diminish the reality of spiritual warfare that the Scriptures clearly lay out. The devil is described as a roaring lion who looks to kill you and choke you with your sin. But we cannot ascribe temptation to external forces every time like Jesus could. Our flawed hearts are often the culprit of our temptation. So as we read, we see in these verses, the devil comes and lays before Jesus three unique temptations. And Jesus is perfectly faithful as he turns from the allurement and he turns to the Father whom he loves. And i like us to survey each temptation because in them we see something of the identity of Jesus that will radically, radically affect your week. So temptation number one, verse three. Jesus is hungry, so the temptation is one of food and provision. The devil suggests that Jesus prove His power by turning stones to bread. Uh, Read with me again the response of Jesus in verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, it's really easy in these passages to get really caught up on what the stones look like and geographically what was going on and where was the wilderness. And that can be helpful information if you're curious, but it doesn't really point to what Matthew's trying to get at in our passage. It's pointed and it's often realized that Jesus' response in verse 4 is a quotation of Deuteronomy 8.3. So sometimes it can even turn into something like this. When tempted to sin, Jesus quoted Scripture, so when we're tempted to sin, we should do the same. Now, that is a good model to follow, but is that why Jesus quoted the Scriptures? No. There's more here than initially meets the eye. And we have to go back to Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy and ask, what exactly was he talking about? So, and I'll explain this more fully in a second. But in Deuteronomy eight three, Moses is reminding Israel of their sin. Now, a very specific sin when they were tempted to turn from God because, like Jesus, they found themselves in a wilderness and they were hungry. They were hungry, and I have a very low tolerance for whining, and they were whining. They were complaining. They doubted. And even as you read through Israel's story, they tried to manufacture and even store up their own provision for food. Jesus is tempted in the exact same way. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8:3. Jesus is tempted to manufacture his own food and provision, tempted to doubt the timing and the provision of God. But instead of complaining, instead of whining, instead of turning stones into bread, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 and he says, no, 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 I'm trusting the Father. I'm obeying where Israel failed. Temptation number two in verse five. Jesus, in some mysterious way, is transported to the holy city. Uh, the holy land, as you know, is Minnesota. So he was in our of woods, it seems. And he wasn't. So he's taken to the top of the temple, and he's encouraged to jump. And he's encouraged to prove God's promises of protection over him. And even Satan used scripture to lure Jesus to do this thing. And what's his response? Well, read with me again in verse 7. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What's the fundamental temptation here? I'd argue it's a temptation of knowledge and a temptation of protection. Will God care for me? Is he really for me? Or perhaps, I'm not sure if he is, I should manufacture a way to prove that God is for me. Jesus' response, again, is a quotation of Scripture, this time Deuteronomy 6.16. Again, Jesus references a part of a sermon by Moses that is documenting the sin of Israel. And it happened back in Exodus 17. Israel had been delivered from Egypt. They went through the waters of the Red Sea, but they're grumbling again. And they were asking things like this. Is God for me? Will he provide for me? Do I know what he's going to do? So God instructs Moses to strike a rock and water will come out and the people will drink. So Moses does that. And water came, and the people drank. But let me quote you Exodus seventeen seven. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Fast forward thousands of years, we come to Jesus. In the wilderness, being tempted to ask the very same question. Is the Lord among us or not? Will God care for you? Prove it by jumping down. Prove God's care for you by manipulating the situation. Take control. Don't rest and trust in God's timing and provision. Manufacture it for yourself. That's the temptation. Jesus is faithful where Israel was not. Instead of testing God, Jesus trusted in the timing of God's faithful provision. Now, by way of just a little application, there's a sense in which all three of these temptations, we're going to see some of ourselves in them and the things that we're bent to. But this temptation in particular... Is God the Lord among us? Will he provide? And we often think he won't. So what do we do? Well, you cheat on your taxes. You're greedy with your time and money. You hold and restrict. You you manipulate some relationship to get what you want. You push your own way and your own preference because you're not trusting that God will take care of it. And this happens with sexual sin as well. Now, we know the scripture says that, that marriage is the relationship between a, a man and a woman, and, and sexual intimacy is to, it's, is to be reserved for that. But then what's our temptation? Well, I don't know if he'll really provide for me, so I'm going to go chase after it outside of his provision. We do this all the time. I I do. Well, temptation number three, verse nine. Jesus is taken in some way, again, to a high mountain this time, and he's shown the kingdoms and the world in all its glory and splendor. Worship and follow me, Jesus, and I'll give you it all. That's a temptation. But read Jesus' response in verse 10. Be gone, Satan. There's some really good translations out there that say it in a lot more colorful way. Get out of here. Leave. Be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, of course, the pattern continues that we've seen. This is a quotation of Deuteronomy 6.13. Moses, in that passage, is in the midst of the same sermon he was giving, when we quoted him in our last temptation. He's reminded the people of Israel of their need to turn from other gods and idols and serve the true and living Lord. Israel felt the continual temptation, as do we. Even after Moses had passed and entered into Canaan, the people did, they were polled, as we are pulled, to worship other gods because it would mean an easier path than following the true God. Following Yahweh in the Old Testament felt incredibly hard, especially when they doubted and thought perhaps that following other gods or idols would mean an easier path of life. It's the exact same temptation with Jesus. And the temptation is twofold. First, the devil is offering something to Jesus that's already his, by the way. The scriptures do say that Jesus will inherit all things. The kingdoms, the worlds, every knee will bow and confess him as king. It's all his already. But Satan is offering something to Jesus that he will someday enjoy. The possession and the rule and the glory of the world. So part of the temptation is, Jesus, why wait? Why wait for my timing? when you can have it, or why wait for the Father's timing, when you can have it now. The second aspect of this temptation is even more sinister. Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you the world as a possession, and you can bypass. You can bypass time. You can bypass difficulty, and you can even bypass the death on a cross. You can take the easier way, Jesus. Following the Father's call on your earthly life and ministry is hard. Take the easy route. No blood, no death, no wrath of God poured out on you. You can have the world in an easier way. That's the temptation. Have you felt that one? Me too. Jesus is faithful where Israel was not. Israel's history was chock full of turning to other gods and idols to make life as easy and comfortable and plush as they could. The Savior here is the better son. He tells the devil to get lost. Get out of here. I don't need you, and I don't need your lofty promises. I'll accept what is promised to me, even if it's harder and bloodier. I'm faithful to God not to you. That's incredibly powerful. So there's two things I want to point out as it relates to how we apply these temptations to our own life. First, as you can see, the narrative of Jesus' historical conquering over temptation and being faithful to God is not, is not a manual primarily for you and I in how to conquer our own temptation. It's not. Matthew has fulfillment on the brain, and this whole situation is recorded for us that we would see Jesus as the obedient and better Adam, the godlier David, and the more faithful Israel. And as we discovered last week, Jesus is for our righteousness. He was righteous even in temptation, because we are not. Jesus was perfect, because we are not. Think for a moment, just think for a moment, why would Jesus quote three verses from Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, its title, it it literally means second law. So in this second giving of God's law, Israel is told that they will receive blessing if they obey God's law and they'll receive cursing if they don't. Well, if you read their history, they very clearly dismissed and disobeyed. Jesus is showing, even in our passage, that he is fulfilling the law of God on our behalf. That's why he quotes Deuteronomy. He points to the sin of Israel and says, I was faithful where they weren't. He points to the law of God and says, even in temptation, I'm fulfilling the law of God on your behalf. So he did live a perfect life. So that he would be the perfect sacrifice to die for our sins. To rise again and offer forgiveness. And credit his righteousness to any who believe and cling to him. This is called the good news. This is the gospel. Jesus' overcoming in temptation is part of that good news. So as you cling to Jesus, God looks at you with favor. Because his son is perfect Because his son fulfilled and obeyed the scriptures for us. So, my friends, do you fail and fall and give yourself into temptation again and again and again? Look to Jesus. He is enough. He lived and died for you so that you don't have to die on the altar of your own performance. Praise God. But a second area of application may seem like a bit of contradiction to what I just said. But remember, we do allow for nuance. Two things can be true at the same time. Yes, this passage demonstrates that Jesus is faithful in temptation. He's faithful when we are not, and we cling to his perfect righteousness. Yes, we cannot be righteous in and of ourselves. We cannot, we cannot overcome temptation perfectly as he did. However, the life of Jesus does provide us an example. When temptations rise in our own heart, it's not wrong for us to cling to Jesus' righteousness, but also ask the Spirit of God to shape Christlikeness in us. This is a passage where we can behold the beauty of Jesus and his example and ask to be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We can ask God to give us scriptures to quote when we're tempted to sin, when, the, when there's sin in our hearts in this world. Uh, it, it'd be good to have a verse. That's a good example. And we can audibly, just as he did, we can speak and communicate to ourselves and our temptations to our tempters and say, get out of here. I'm following God. It'd be good to do that. In fact, I think that'd be in a very appropriate application for us this week. When you and I are tempted by sin this week, tempted by the the sinful tendencies of our own heart, we should say out loud, no, no, in Jesus' name and in his power, I will not give myself over to that. There's something very powerful about a spoken word in Jesus' name, as we see in the book of Acts. So, brothers and sisters, hold both these things in balance as you encounter temptation. Jesus is faithful on your behalf, and his example is something we strive to follow as we're enabled by the Holy Spirit, as we're faithful followers of Christ. And By the way, if you're here this morning and you're considering Christianity, thank you for being here, this is a great argument, this passage is a great argument for why you should join us in following Jesus. Jesus offers amazing gifts of forgiveness, joy, heaven, and a new heart. And he also provides the only real thing that can help you live in this world without guilt. He overcame on your behalf, and he provides his spirit to aid us in following his example. Well, may the Lord do this in our midst this week, brothers and sisters. Well, lastly here, uh, I'd like us to consider how Jesus, yes, he, he was led into difficulty, he was faithful in difficulty, and last year he was refreshed after difficulty. Would you read with me again this final verse in verse 11? Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's a short verse, so I'll make a short point and an application. Every season of life, even in Jesus' life, every season is just that, a season. This was a unique season in Jesus' life as he was tempted and tested for his earthly ministry as that was about to begin, the triune God led Jesus by the Spirit into a season that had an expiration date. The triune God led Jesus into a season of difficulty that was the necessary preparation for what was about to come. And so it is with us, Lakewood. So it is with you and I. Your difficulty and temptation season is a season. Different seasons come and go, as do temptations. It is the good, wise, and sovereign plan of God in your life. He's using these seasons to test you. He's using these seasons to shape Christ in you. He's using these seasons so that you would come to the humble, dependent, and even desperate position that says and proclaims Jesus is fulfillment and Jesus is my example. He has overcome where I have failed. He is my hope and righteousness, and He has given me a word. He's given me the Spirit. He's given me promises and an example to follow. So this week, in the midst of anxiety, questions, in the midst of circumstances and our imperfect attempts in following Jesus, we can have great hope and confidence. God is in control. He leads me for his purposes. He meets me and enables me in those weak moments. And he's provided Jesus, who has conquered on my behalf. Well, may the Lord help us this week as we faithfully follow Christ. In closing here, I'd like to read a prayer. And um, sell sell an organ, do a garage sale, um, you know, whatever you need to do, buy this book. It's called Piercing Heaven. It's a, it's a book of prayers, and the prayer goes something like this. Lord, you know, I cannot rid myself of the iniquity in my heart. I cannot do the things that I would. I cannot pray as I would. I cannot listen as I would, nor think, nor speak, nor live as I would. Jesus is my righteousness. Wherever I go, sin goes with me. Where I stay, it stays. If I sit still, there it is with me. If I run from it, it follows me. I cannot rest. I cannot work. I cannot do anything. Sin is always, always hounding me. And yet, blessed be your name. This I do. I fight against it, I wrestle with it in temptation though it so often takes me down. I do not trust in sin, though it flatters me. I do not love it, though it feeds me. My heart is with you, Lord. I am following after you. I groan and I struggle in pain, waiting for your redemption. Until I die, I will not give up. Jesus is my righteousness. I will die fighting. I will die hoping. I will die praying. I will die believing. Save me, O Lord. Do not delay, my God. Pray with me. Father, that is our prayer. That this week, as we are led by your Spirit into difficulties and even temptations, we would cling to the faithful one, the one who was faithful on our behalf. And Father, we ask that you would enable in us Christ-likeness so that we can live in this life without fear and shame and guilt, knowing that Jesus paid it all, and that we would be a different kind of people who would fight, who would wrestle against the temptation that rises in our hearts. Lord, that we would also, too, know the sweet refreshment of the Spirit of God ministering to our souls. Father, many of us need to be reminded that the seasons are hard, but they do end. And you do meet us. So, Lord, would you be kind to refresh us and to meet us and to enable us to faithfully follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.